Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Welcome back to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast, published by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. My name is Seb. I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. And today we're going to be talking about donut economics. How do we ensure prosperity for as many people as possible whilst working within the planetary boundaries of this planet? And we're going to be talking to the founder or the originator of this concept, Kate Rayworth. But we're also going to be talking about with people who are trying to apply this podcast in the city of Amsterdam. We've got Anna Reek from Circular Economy who worked on the project and also Evelyn from the city of Amsterdam itself. And they're going to be talking about how do you take an idea like donut economics and turn it into reality in the city of Amsterdam. For our audience who might not be so familiar with your framework, um, could you show us how it looks like? I think you have an image or something with you. Yeah, I always have a donut on the stick nearby. So here's a donut. And I offer it as a compass for 21st century prosperity. So the idea is imagine humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the middle of this picture. And that means the hole in the middle is a place where people don't have the essentials of life. They don't have the food, water, healthcare, housing, education, income, political voice, gender equality that every person has a claim to. We must leave no person in the world in the hole of this donut. Get everybody over the social foundation and into the green ring itself. That was even a 20th century ambition to meet the needs of all. But in the 21st century, we know more. We know that if we try to do this in a way that excessively and misuses Earth's resources, we push ourselves beyond this ecological ceiling. We start to break down the life-supporting systems of planet Earth on which all of our lives depend. And we cause climate breakdown and we acidify the oceans. We create a hole in the ozone layer, catastrophic levels of biodiversity loss. And these are the nine planetary boundaries that Earth system scientists say are the life-supporting systems that make this planet the one habitable planet of life in the universe that we know of. So we'd be crazy to kick ourselves out. If you put those two together, the goal of getting into the donut is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. It's that simple. The question is, how do we get there? And I believe we need to create a regenerative and distributive economy to take us in that direction. Okay, you've, we've spoken about, you've shown us a very different picture, as you say, from that crisscross supply-demand diagram that we are all presented with in our first day in, in an economics bachelor's uh, or in any degree. Um, but um, what I'm thinking now is, where, where is the economy in your framework? What kind of, of thinking uh, do economists, uh, economists in the 21st century need? Because um, in, in the diagram we can see the planetary boundaries, the social foundations, but where are the economics? Yeah, it's a really good question because, because an economist might say, well, I can't see the economy here. Where is it? And I very intentionally took away the normal indicators that we start with of the economy because I wanted to say, let's start with the fundamentals. Let's start with the fundamentals of human well-being. And these are drawn from the Sustainable Development Goals. So all the governments in the world have already agreed that all the people in the world have a claim to meeting these essential needs. And let's start with the fundamentals of planetary health. I mean, after all, economics means the art of household management. How the heck can you presume to manage the household if you don't even understand it? So let's understand this household, its planetary boundaries. Let's understand its people and their essential needs. Now we've put in place the fundamentals of economics. 
Now we can invite economic thinking and reasoning into the room and say, what kind of institutions, what balance between market, state, household and commons, what kind of incentives and regulations will enable us to meet these goals? And the economy is here. I've written it here. It says regenerative and distributive economy. And the reason that's what I wrote is because I believe what we need to focus on is creating dynamics that start bringing us into the donut. Because right now we are way outside on both sides. Billions of people fall short on their essential needs and we're overshooting multiple planetary boundaries. And what that tells us is we have an economy that's deeply degenerative. We are running down the life supporting systems of our planet and we need to transform that degenerative dynamic into a regenerative dynamic where we work with and within the cycles of the living world. But we also have an economy that's deeply divisive, where the returns of value and opportunity are, are so often driven into the hands of a 1%. So we have billions of people who can't meet their essential needs and a doubling of number of billionaires in the world in the past decade. So we need to turn this divisive economic dynamics into distributive economic dynamics. So for me, the 21st century economy is absolutely in the donut. The question is, how are we going to make our economy regenerative? And how are we going to make it distributive? And that is there, that's the entry point. Now let's talk about economics in those terms. Let's reframe the starting point and let's dive in from there. So important to talk about, about framing. And, and what I'm getting is that you basically are thinking about two main principles for the economy. So it has to be regenerative by design and distributive by design. And I think a lot of the work of what we do at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation overlaps here with, with the work that you do um, because, because we want to have a regenerative economy. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Kate, um, as part of this, what role do you think the circular economy plays in this? I think it's key. So let me grab my favorite piece of hosepipe. You know, this is our degenerative economy. It's the linear take, make, use, lose of industrial systems that we've inherited. And that linear degenerative process is what pushes us over planetary boundaries. It takes again and again from Earth's sources. It throws waste again and again into Earth's sinks. We have to turn this linear arrow into a circular one, right? We have to work with and within the cycles of the living world so that resources are never used up. They're used again and again far more collectively, more creatively, and more carefully and more slowly. So I think a circular economy is an, a necessity in the search of becoming regenerative. It's, it, we can't do it without reusing resources and recognizing that waste from one process is food for the next. How do we make that distributive at the same time? For me, that's the really interesting question. How do we make sure that the circular economy not only takes us towards regenerative design, It takes us towards distributive design. So, for example, I believe we need industries where, that make products that have the right to repair, that are modular by design, so that instead of individual companies having their own circular supply chain, send everything back to me and it's within my intellectual property rights and these are my materials and nobody else knows how I use them and it's a kind of corporate loop, that is never going to work because nature doesn't do that. Nature doesn't create a series of 100 little loops. Nature creates an ecosystem, right? Nature puts resources back into the ecosystem, back as basic building blocks, and then starts again. So if we want to mimic nature in the way we create circular economies, we need an ecosystem of plastics use and an ecosystem of metals and an ecosystem of electronics and an ecosystem of ceramics. And that means that the materials need to be labeled and open source in their design. So anyone who ends up with a material in their hand knows what kind of material it is, and is able to feed it back into the ecosystem. 
So I think it has really far-reaching implications for ensuring that we don't go down this corporate siloed circularity, but that we have uh, an ecosystem circularity. And that requires a regulation and a collaboration between industries to make that ecosystem and to make those shared commons-based technologies and shared standards that everybody can connect to. But also, I would say that the circular economy has a huge potential to be uh, an employment-creating, a job-creating, and a meaningful job-creating economy, right? There's, there's creativity and joy and meaning in figuring out how to use Earth's resources again and again, how to repurpose them, what can they become next time? So it enables architects and engineers and designers to be innovative, and to come up with new solutions. And those are the folks I meet who work in big companies who can't wait to get going making these new designs. They're often held behind a lobby, a kind of corporate lobby that are trying to stop any change in regulations. But if only that corporate lobby would get out of the way and the regulations could be changed, the innovative inspiration of that generation of designers can be unleashed. And so there's a lot of good jobs. I mean, again, if I bring back this network, Think of all the jobs required to make the connections between these nodes. It is an employment-creating uh, system. So that's another way in which it can be distributed by design. So I think it connects very closely with the work of the Anna MacArthur Foundation. And I think the question always is how do we ensure that as we promote the circular economy, it doesn't become a siloed corporate-captured circular economy. It becomes part of a large ecosystem and it's distributive by design as well. And this shows the, the importance of having a system approach and, and really including all the actors uh, of our economy and not just the businesses, but also the policymakers, the academics and the communities, uh, etc. So you're presenting us with a very different picture that can set very different indicators and, and, and ultimately lead to different policies, different businesses, and different ways of, of doing stuff. Um, and, and you mentioned you, you published The Donut in 2012, your book in 2017, and, and I know you've been working really hard on, on how to downscale this, this, this framework, which can perhaps seem a bit like, uh, theoretical, and, and how to actually apply it uh, to the different levels of the economy. Um, so, cities. Why, why are you focusing on cityscape and, and, and how, do you, how do you move from that image, that framework, to actually uh, talking about uh, the city level? Yeah, so when The Donut was first published in 2012, it is a, it is a compass for the global or the planetary scale. It, it tries to plot all of humanity within the planetary boundaries. And very quickly, people started saying, can we turn that into a tool for here? for our city, our town, our nation, our country, and wanted to downscale it. And for years, we couldn't figure out, how would you downscale it? What would that look like? What's the smart way to do that? And then I got into a fantastic conversation with the biomimicry thinker, Janine Benyus, who had a sort of flipped the donut inside out, as it were, and had this idea for, for using it. And we put our ideas together, and we came up with a, a framework for downscaling it, which I feel very confident has a huge ability to be applied at multiple scales. So it could be applied from a neighborhood to a town, to a city, to a district, to a nation, or even to a community of nations. And we've started with cities, partly because there's a real energy going on in cities in these current decades. There's something about cities. Is it that they're the right size, that they can make a difference, but they're not so big that people can't connect? There's a pride, certainly here in the UK, I think people feel more of a pride of the city that they're part of rather than saying, I'm proud to be part of the UK. 
So there's more of a connection with that level of place. And also a lot of creating economic transformation happens in the way we lay out our streets, in the way we move materials around. So there's something about the spatial scale of a city that can try out new things. We also got in touch with the C40, which is a network of 96 cities with mayors who have committed to transforming their cities to, to keep global heating under 1.5 degrees. And they said, we'd like to use the donut with some of our most ambitious cities. So we started working together. That's how we began the work with cities. And we've actually begun in the cities of the global north, in the high-income countries, because we think they have the greatest obligation and responsibility to lead this transformation, given their historic responsibilities for climate and um, ecological impacts. So we've begun with them. And... Um, so, in, for cities, I know you have four main lenses that you look at when you try to approach the donut framework. What, what, what are they and, and why was it so important to incorporate uh, as well the global perspective? So, here's the question that we invite any ambitious city, any city that wants to be fit for the 21st century. We invite it to ask itself, and I, and I just would invite anybody listening to this to think of a city that they know and love and look at it through this lens. So here's the question. How can your city be a home to thriving people in a thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet? So that's a big question. And you can hear in it, there's both local aspiration to be thriving people, whatever it means to the people of, of your city, You know, what it means to thrive will be different to the people of Dar es Salaam as to the people of Stockholm. So let each culture and community bring their history, their meaning, their way of living and say, this is what it means to thrive here for us. And how are we doing against that? And then also part of the local aspiration. What does it mean for your city to be a part of a thriving place? Like every city on the planet is located in a different part of Earth's ecosystems. Some are up mountains, some are in valleys, some are in the equator, some are in the Arctic Circle. And what nature's doing in those places varies. So nature has a genius, as Janine Benyus would say, of thriving different in each of these places. And we can learn from nature and aim for our cities to belong in that habitat. So let's say I'm in the city of Oxford in the UK and, and the nearest natural habitat is a place called Whiteham Woods, just a couple of miles outside the city. I could go to Whiteham Woods and say, this is what nature's doing here. This is how nature thrives. And let's take the measurements of Whiteham Wood. Let's measure how much carbon dioxide these woods are sequestering, how much groundwater they're storing after a storm, how much biodiversity the woods are housing, how much the woods are cooling the air in the summer from the treetops to the forest floor. So we take the metrics of nature and we say, what would it mean for our city to aim to actually match or even exceed the generosity of the wildland next door? So that our cities would be functionally indistinct from the wildland in which they're embedded. As Janine would say, we, we humans come to truly belong in the landscapes in which we are nestled. So that's local aspiration to be thriving people in a thriving place. And many cities just focus on that. We want to have good lives for our residents. We want to have clean air and clean water and nature nearby. But that local aspiration has to be set in the context of global responsibility because every city draws in resources from other parts of the world and is having an impact on people and planet worldwide. And we have to recognize that. So we also ask, how can your city aim to thrive while respecting the, the, the well-being of people worldwide? 
Think of all the food that's imported into a city every day, the clothing, the electronics goods, the material, consumer goods, the construction materials. Whose labor went into picking and packing that food or stitching the clothes and packaging and transporting, mining the construction materials? Because people's labor and their communities worldwide have been affected for good or for bad have been affected through the supply chains that are connected to the city. How can the city transform its supply chains through the way the government procures public goods, through the, through the products that are on sale in the city, through the lifestyle that we aspire to in the city, so that we have far better impacts on the lives of people worldwide? And then the last lens is how do we ensure the city respects the well-being of the whole planet? So again, a city might have clean air and clean water, but it's importing from the whole world. And so its ecological impacts may be falling very, very far away, but very heavily through mining, through logging, through plastic pollution, through chemical processes. So how can the city take responsibility for all the materials it's importing and massively reduce that impact? And of course, a circular economy that reuses materials is going to be a very important part of reducing that. So a thriving a city that's home to thriving people in a thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet. Local aspiration in the context of global responsibility. We think every 21st century forward-looking city should be asking itself these questions. That was Kate Rayworth explaining her framework. Um, I highly recommend reading her book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And join their community at the, the Donut Economics Action Lab website, donuteconomics.org, to be up to date with the amazing work that they are doing. Sarah. So we have Anarika Doma, the Director of Global Alliances and Cities at Circle Economy, and Evelyn Yonkov, the Program Manager for Amsterdam Circular with us. Thank you so much for being with us. And we're going to dive straight into how the circular economy and donut economics are really powerful frameworks for cities and how and why Amsterdam have, has implemented this framework. Anarika, if we come to you first, um, could you maybe talk to us about how the donut economics framework accelerates the transition to a circular economy in cities? Yes, so good afternoon, thank you. Um, so the donut economics framework provides that framework where we work towards thriving people in a thriving place, as Kate just explains beautifully. We know that the circular economy contributes largely to basically meeting societal needs within the planetary boundaries, the green space of the donut itself. And to give you an example of um, a circular um, strategy in a city, you could think of uh, local food systems, local circular economy food systems. Each city wants to provide its citizens with jobs, with education, but also limiting the emissions related to the global supply chain it currently is. This is following a bit what Kate just explained as well. And especially in the global north, our countries um, and our cities where we are today are over-consuming and consuming a lot. And it's all based on a lot of these global supply chains. So, for example, the transportation movements are huge in this sense. By working towards a circular food system in cities, 
you're reducing the, the emission impact that come with those trans transportation. But it could also provide extra jobs locally. So urban production, urban consumption, and bring it all close to the city while reducing the food waste and bringing the nutrients back to the soil close to home. So I think this touches upon quite some themes that Kate just explained uh, that the donut brings together. And what does this donut economics framework give a city that other frameworks don't? I think that's a very nice question. Um, as Kate just said, um, we're working with uh, C4, uh, quite some C40 cities and Donut Economics Action Lab. And what we have seen in this learning journey, because we have just started a year and a half ago, so um, I'm not pretending to know, but what we see is that it connects. It connects the minds and the hearts. It connects people from different departments within the city. It connects civil society organization, businesses, um, and the city officials through one framework. It's very intuitive and it provides a narrative that everyone can relate to. So it's something that I had not seen before when working with cities actually. And Andrea, Kate just mentioned why you, why, well, why the donut, why, why CS started, sorry, working with um, cities in in the global north. Let's say, um, do you believe that the that the framework could be applied to other contexts or other cities around the world? Um, yes, we definitely believe that it's been a large part of the discussions that we've had. Um, we have currently developed the methodology, Donut Economics Action Lab has developed the methodology, we've inputted into that, and it's mainly piloted among cities with a similar profile, with high economic activity and also high consumption patterns. So the tool, the city portrait tool that's been created is suitable for these global north cities, but I have we also recognize the fact that, for example, working on providing this social foundation for many global south cities, while not they are not overshooting the planetary boundaries today, they should not be working on similar strategies to get to this safe and just space as global north cities. So yes, we believe it can be applied to different contexts, and yes, the methodology will have to be adapted a bit. Is the, the donut framework necessarily a recipe for success in a city? Or would you say that there are some, uh, let's say, pre-existing conditions that could, that could help uh, leave, lead the donut framework application uh, to a great result uh, in a city? Um, we believe that some of the guiding principles, but again, we're learning. So I also want to answer this question uh, in a humble way. Um, we believe that this happens through participatory processes of working with civil society organizations, of working with businesses, but also with the city itself. And it's a collaborative process. It also has to be very transparent and open and everybody will have to change the mindset and the mind shift that's needed to get from a linear to a circular economy, which is a necessity to get to that safe and just space. So there are some guiding principles, but I'm not, I think we're learning uh, a lot 
and will probably have more guiding principles or uh, at least um, experiences to share in a short time or along the road. We've, um, through some conversations with you, we've understood that um, there have been some unexpected results from applying the donor economics framework within Amsterdam, one of which has been the development of a uh, a coalition, a donut economics coalition in Amsterdam, um, which some other cities are interested in. Could you talk to us a little bit about the role of um, circle economy in expanding the framework and its application globally, um, and maybe a little bit about these coalitions that, that are wanting to be developed around the world? Um, I'll, I'll answer the question about the donut coalitions uh, first. So the donut coalitions that we see uh, are bottom-up um, our bottom-up activities um, and have actually been ignited by civil society organizations and a coalition of a lot of, a lot of people that see the donut as a framework that they can work with for a better city, for a thriving city, a thriving place. And um, I think what we've seen in Amsterdam that happened at this in, in simultaneously, while we were working with the donut uh, based on the donut model with the city itself, but Evelyn will talk about that later. Um, we also saw that the donut coalition of educational institutes, of other civil society organizations, and a, a large set of businesses started. And what we're currently doing is bringing these together to accelerate all the great initiatives. And you could see on the website of a donut coalition, Amsterdam, for example, how many donut deals, as they call them, uh, citizen, uh, citizen uh, initiatives based on the donuts. Um, there are so many of them. But also in Melbourne, we see a similar donut collective arising, which is very, very inspiring, actually. And it's really a bottom-up movement, um, if I can say. Uh, to your second question of the role of circle economy, our role is to downscale it in a practical way to the city level. We're creating the participatory processes um, and co-creative processes and obviously bring um, uh, as also together with you uh, the circular economy expertise to these uh, cities and this, the, yeah, the fundamental need of a system, a systemic change, which is needed. So, Thanks so much, Anarika. Before we talk to Evelyn in Amsterdam, um, we're going to watch a short clip about Donut Economics Framework being applied to the city. Our aim is for Amsterdam to be a thriving city where everyone can prosper, while maintaining respect for the earth and its planetary boundaries. Our current way of life affects people and places all over the world. Our level of consumption is depleting raw materials and causing significant CO2 emissions elsewhere. To change this, we need to rethink the way we produce and consume. In other words, Amsterdam needs to become a circular city. But how? First, we examined the impact our actions have on other parts of the world and documented this in the Amsterdam City Donut, based on Kate Rayworth's donut model. Second, we created a circular strategy with concrete actions regarding food, buildings and goods. Activities that not only reduce our own consumption and prevent waste, but also set an example for residents and businesses, like the Vondeltown, the circular district Bach Schlauterham, or our port serving as a circular hub. 
However, Amsterdam needs to do this as a whole. Together with residents and business, we are developing solutions both big and small. Many initiatives are already underway, which we support with coaching, funding and sometimes as a launching customer. The COVID-19 crisis hit our society and economy hard. It's important that we recover from it in a way that benefits everyone. We need to stimulate the economy in a circular way, for our prosperity and our future. Amsterdam, Circular City in 2050. So we've heard from Anarika the advantages of using the Donut Economics Framework at the city level. So it's great to have someone from the city of Amsterdam with us to talk to us a little bit more about really kind of how this, this framework applies more at a granular level um, to a city. So we know that Amsterdam has developed one circular economy roadmap and this year you released your second roadmap. Um, and as part of that roadmap development, you use the Donut Economics framework um, to be able to develop that. Um, Evelyn, could you talk to us about why you decided to use this model um, as opposed to the model that you used before or other models um, that exist? Yes, happy to do so. Uh, good afternoon to you all. Um, what we did when we developed the first roadmap, it was based on um, a research, say, journey to find out where we have to focus on. And we decided back then, a couple of years ago, to focus on the built environment value chain and the food and biomass value chain. We evaluated uh, all those projects that we realized um, in the last couple of years. And we concluded that we can't afford as a city to only look at, say, the physical environment or the environmental boundaries. We also have to take into account the social foundation. And when we met uh, Anrika again and also together with Kate, we decided very quickly um, that uh, the next step in the development of our new strategy and to really become a climate neutral and inclusive uh, and circular city, um, that it is a unique opportunity to use the donuts economics framework as an underlying methodology or starting point or framework on which we can build our new strategy. So what we did by developing the new five-year strategy and also the two-year innovation and, uh, and action program is that we checked very thoroughly if every aspect, every building stone of this strategy and this program is really helping us to stay within the planetary boundaries and at the same time strengthen social foundation. And in your new roadmap, you focused on uh, three sectors. Um, so you have the built environment um, and organic um, and, and the food, organic waste streams in the food sector. And you've added consumer products um, as a focus area for Amsterdam. Could you talk us through about what the donut economics framework looks like when applied to a specific sector like consumer goods or the built environment? Yeah, what we did because we were looking at these three value chains. Um, uh, when we also developed together the strategy and uh, all the, the, the two and more hundreds of uh, projects within the innovation and action program, we did that together with all the different departments we have in our city administration. So it's really a citywide uh, program. And we also include um, 
other stakeholders like the businesses, the citizens, the knowledge institutions. So it's a kind of movement that we are creating uh, throughout our city. Um, and using the different economic frameworks makes us realize that when we are developing our projects like um, uh, looking at the food and, and organic waste stream uh, value chain, that also given the, the actual situation of the pandemic, a new project like uh, Farmers to Neighbors is about shortening the food chain and at the same time making sure that all people in Amsterdam are provided with healthy and sustainable food. Um, so that is really applying the donut on a very concrete uh, project. Um, another one is also during the, the, the present pandemic is a project called um, Everybody Connected, in which we are uh, helping uh, all those households and also especially the children who are, have to stay at home and at the same time uh, needs education to apply them with refurbished laptops. So although, again, using existing material and existing laptops, refurbish them and share them with those who can't afford to buy a new laptop by themselves. It's also, I think, a very practical example of how we apply uh, the donut on the level of the city. And from another um, uh, perspective, when we look at, say, the, the, the built environment, because laptops is an example, of, of course, of the consumer goods value chain. When we look at the built environment, an example is that when we look at city district development, there are a lot of values already captured on the level of the city district. By look at energy sources, water supply, biodiversity, social cohesion, existing materials, because there are existing buildings. And what we do is we start to look at these city districts by looking at all those different values. So we make a value inventory. And then based on that inventory, we can decide uh, what values we have to, to keep um, when we are renovating the city district or redeveloping the city district. So of all levels of our city, throughout all those value chains, we can apply uh, all those different aspects of uh, the city donut. And it means uh, also that when we look at a project or where we look at a decision we have to make as a city, we can make a balanced decision because we look at all those different aspects together. Before I let Lara ask a question, because I know she has, um, she definitely has questions for you as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that um, you've translated circular economy from a program to a movement in Amsterdam, something that I know you're very proud of. Um, and that's something that many cities that we speak to are striving for as well. Um, could you maybe quickly just tell us a little bit about how you've managed to do that? Yes, what we did, we started um, the development of this new strategy at the beginning of last year in 2019, in the spring of 2019. And we invited um, colleagues from all different departments to work together with us, with Kate and with Anarika and her team on the building blocks for this new strategy. So we involved from the start, start all those different colleagues and all those different perspectives. Um, we did the same in uh, October 2019 with even more colleagues to actually build a new strategy. And we asked them, okay, please show me your projects and uh, make and, and let's combine all those projects within one common 
commonly shared uh, innovation and action program. Um, and at the beginning of this year in January, we invited hundreds of representatives of businesses, stakeholders, NGOs, and citizens um, to comment on the draft version of both the strategy and the program. So it's really a shared vision, a shared program, and a shared uh, strategy. And we combine this also with the development of a monitoring framework to actually monitoring the progress uh, towards uh, a circular, climate neutral and inclusive city. And, uh, and, and also Kate was speaking about that, we actually developed the first city port uh, portrait to see on both the local and the global level, looking at it from the societal and ecological perspective, where we stand as a city. And all those four elements are so important to create this movement, to build this movement and to maintain this movement and strengthen it. Brilliant. Um, Evelyn, there are two things that uh, clearly stand out uh, for me from what you are saying. First is the degree of collaboration that you need within the city, which is, uh, at least in my opinion, pretty outstanding uh, of all the work that you are doing in Amsterdam. And then the second thing is that through the four lenses that Kate mentioned, the three value chains that you've just explained to us, you've probably you probably had to had to deal with a lot of data, both qualitative and quantitative. Um, so, in your opinion, what are the main learning and outcomes of of having used the, the donut framework? Well, what we see, of course, it's it's uh, at this stage of transition, uh, we all know that's very hard to collect all the data because we have so many data owners in our society. So what we are now doing is actually develop so-called uh, innovative uh, data partnerships with owners of data like the Port of Amsterdam or the airport or businesses or national uh, research institutes. So that's how can we develop new kinds of partnerships around data, which I think it's, it's a great learning. And also when you look at a city portrait and see the impact we have on both the global and the local level uh, from this different, uh, via these different lenses, you see that it is extremely important and crucial that we balance our decisions and that we use this integrated thinking as a starting point for making decisions. That means also that we have to work throughout the city administration as one organization. And that's what we're actually doing um, in the strategy and in the program is working together as one organization based on this say, um, fundamental thinking around uh, donut economics. And also when we look at uh, the, the present crisis, it's even more obvious that we have to change the way we work and live and develop our cities. And when you mention data par partnerships, is, is that uh, how you are planning to measure prog uh, progress uh, towards the donut? And if, and if I may ask, how, how is Amsterdam currently doing uh, according to, to the data? Uh, well, we are now building our first monitoring framework. Uh, we hope to um, uh, share it with uh, the rest of the world, uh, the first version of it uh, in spring next year. Um, and because we need a lot of data. Um, but what we saw and that strikes us even more, we already knew that um, 
we need a circular economy in order to reach the Paris Agreement. What we did uh, when we uh, look at the first monitoring framework, we calculated the amount of materials we used in one year, and then we calculated the related amount of CO2 emissions caused elsewhere in the world. And what you see is on the level of a city, uh, one third of the total amount of CO2 we produce as a city, not only Amsterdam, but all cities, are related to the use of electricity and heat and transportation. Two-thirds of the CO2 emissions we cause as a city is produced elsewhere, is related to the way we could produce and consume. That's striking. Um, so we need to change the present economic system also in order to reach the Paris Agreement. So that was one also of the striking findings of this first monitoring framework. So there you have it, the beginnings of a project attempting to apply a fundamentally different model for our economy, a model that works for people and a model that works within our environmental constraints but still drives business and economic value. Um, Thank you for listening to this podcast. As you know, there's many more episodes already on the way. Do subscribe to this podcast and rate and like and comment on it on whichever channels you listen to it on. Uh, And we'll see you next time on the Explore the Circle Me podcast. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.